0: Good morning, I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. In June of 2022, Connecticut became the first state to pass a state-funded mandate to teach Asian American and Pacific Islander history in public schools at all levels. While Illinois and New Jersey were the first states to require Asian American studies, they did not include any state-funded mandates. As you can imagine, teaching about the histories of Asian Americans has been sparse and thinking about my own experience, virtually non-existent. Well, to delve more into Asian American history this morning, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Catherine Suniza Choi. Professor Choi is an Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Belonging, and Justice in UC Berkeley's Division of Computing, Data Science, and Society. She is an engaged public scholar and has been interviewed and had her research cited in many media outlets, including ABC 2020, The Atlantic, CNN, Los Angeles Times, NBC News, New York Times, and Vox, to name a few. Her first book, Empire of Care, Nursing and Migration in Filipino-American History, explored how and why the Philippines became the leading exporter of professional nurses to the United States. Her second book, Global Families, A History of Asian International Adoption in America, unearthed the little-known historical origins of Asian international adoption in the United States, beginning with the post-World War II presence of the U.S. military in Asia. Her third book, which was published in early August of this year with Beacon Press, is entitled Asian American Histories of the United States. Good morning, Dr. Katherine Siniza Choi. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yes, I am so excited that we are going to chat about your book, again, Asian American Histories of the United States. I was so excited uh, when I saw, I think on Twitter, probably, because that's like where I get all of my academic news on Twitter. I think I saw (laughs) someone, and maybe it was even you, tweeting out that the book was coming out, and I was like, oh my goodness, I have to see if I can get you on the show to talk about this, because it's... So important Asian American history is so important, but then I just knew, I just already knew that the book was going to be amazing and it absolutely is. So thank you.
1: Oh, thanks so much for, for those kind words and for your excitement. It takes so long to uh, write a book. And so um, it's also really exciting for me that it's out in the world.
0: Yes, yes. And we'll talk a little bit. I have some questions about the writing process for you a little bit later. But let's start with, of course, what the book is about, which is Asian American histories of the United States. And, you know, it's been just recently where we've seen, as I said in my intro, states finally making it uh, a mandate that Asian American history has to be taught. And I was wondering if maybe you could just share a little bit about your own experience with learning Asian American history, maybe in that K through 12 time period.
1: Sure. I'd be happy to share my experience. Uh, My experience was that in grade school um, and in high school, I never learned about Asian American history. Um, I'm a second generation Filipino American. I was born and raised in New York city and um, I attended Uh, different kinds of schools. K through eight, I went to a parochial school. And then um, in high school, I went to one of the um, city's specialized um, math and science schools. And I received, um, I would say, a decent and very good um, education. But one of my critiques of this education was the absence of Asian American history, um, to the point where I have to say, growing up, even though I knew I was part of this history and this experience, I didn't even have a sense that there was such a thing as Asian American history um, in education. And that wouldn't become clear to me until I went to college. Um, I went to a small liberal arts college in Southern California, Pomona College, and I um, They didn't have Asian American studies or ethnic studies at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I did have um, professors who specialized in Mexican American history, um, African history, and who became um, mentors to me Um, Mm -hmm. and um, made me feel as though. Ethnic studies and the study of Asian American experience was absolutely legitimate and something that I could pursue. And so it was really in college where I started taking ethnic studies history classes, although not in Asian American history. And it wasn't until graduate school, I got my PhD in history from UCLA, that um, I started to work with a specialist, um, Professor Valerie Matsumoto, who became the chair of my dissertation, a specialist in Asian American history. So it took it took a long time um, for me to, to get to um, that point. And I appreciate your introduction about um, Connecticut, Illinois, and New Jersey. And what you're sharing reminds us that there's been progress that has been made and yet this is 2022. Yeah. And so confronting the issue of why did it take this long? And why is it now, even though now is better? <laughs>
0: <laughs> now
1: now is better than, than later.
0: Yeah. I mean, just listening to kind of your story of how you came to even, you know, learn about Asian American history, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, they won't go on to a PhD program, right? And so that would be, they, they would never potentially never learn about Asian American history. Um, and even now, thinking about here we are in 2022 and we see, you know, not even a full handful of states passing these type of mandates. you know, why has it taken so long? and why now? But I think in thinking about your approach to your book, it's very much connected to how you tell some of these stories, right? Why now in 2022, we think about COVID-19 and the increase in anti-Asian violence and racism. We could think about maybe that being part of this impetus for states to pass this legislation, but then also um, thinking about making that connection to history and um, the UC Berkeley student strike, right? And thinking about that in the 1960s and the start of ethnic studies. So I see that even kind of interspersed first throughout, you know, your own story, and of course, where we are, you know, presently as well.
1: Yes, you're bringing up such important um, moments in both our present day, but also our recent um, history, when you're bringing up the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and then juxtaposing it with this um, the the origin of ethnic studies out of student strikes um, and social movements in, in the late 1960s. And I really appreciate you doing that. And in my approach um, in the book, one of the things that's distinctive um, in my approach to Asian American histories is that the first substantive chapter begins in the more present moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And chapter one um, features the year 2020. Um, And I did this because, um, again, referring to um, some of the points that you've already brought up, part of the reason why we are seeing this move by particular states in the United States right now, um, comes from the present moment and how Asian Americans have dealt with twin existential crises, um, since 2020, um, a deadly pandemic and then a surge in anti-Asian, um, hate and violence. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a certain kind of urgency, um, um a literal life and, and death, um, situation that we've been um, confronting. And I think embedded in this move to ensure that Asian American history is taught in our schools is an implicit acknowledgement that had we had the resource of Asian American history Mm -hmm. more well known um, in our schools and among our residents and citizens, that this would oppose this anti-Asian hate and violence, because the hate and violence comes from um, being dehumanized and being seen as um, objects of scapegoating, uh, medical scapegoating of, of COVID-19, uh, and this sense that um, if you're less than human, then the violence is legitimate or or justified. Um, And history helps us bring humanity to um, not only individuals, but but populations. Mm -hmm. And um, we can only wonder what would have happened um, had we had Asian American history um, taught um, regularly um, with um, humanity and um, and dignity um, for decades, that perhaps we wouldn't have experienced this surge in hate and violence um, at the level of intensity that so many Asian Americans have have been experiencing.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you talk about in the book how Asian-American history is, in many ways, a history of erasure, that we don't know the history. So therefore, we who who are we or how do people see us, if they see us at all, um, through these very limited representations? And I love that you start the book in the present. Um One, because there's so much happening, right? And so I think for readers, they can really latch on to it, right? They can understand it in the present moment, right? This makes sense. This is, um, you know, resonating with what I see happening around me. Um, But I also think it makes, you know, history seem like it's not so far in the distant past, uh, which is what your book really shows us, that what's happening now has a connection to these histories that maybe we are learning for the first time but now we can think about our present in a in a different way and I wanted to just start in chapter one a little bit more because you talk about uh, Filipina American nurses. And I know this is, of course, one of your areas of expertise, but I thought it was really relevant in thinking about a couple of things. One, because I realized in the chapter, you talk about how we have all these medical dramas, but we don't see Filipina American nurses, or we don't see any Filipino nurses depicted in these medical dramas. And I was like, oh, wow. And I had to think about my favorite gray's anatomy. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, but I think that's again, thinking about that dehumanization. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, the history of migration for Filipino nurses and their contributions really to our healthcare system.
1: Sure. I'd, I'd be happy to, um, Filipino nurses have been, um, participating in mass migrations to the United States since the 1960s. And so this is um, a migration that is six decades long. There have been over 150,000 Filipino immigrant nurses um, since the 1960s. They have um, predominantly worked in public inner city hospitals, um, as well as rural areas and in institutions that have been difficult for US healthcare um, to recruit nurses and and caregivers in. So they make this incredible contribution um, to the health of our US nation Mm -hmm. because um, so many of them are serving our most vulnerable Um, and underserved uh, populations, and typically at the bedside, both in terms of um, acute or short-term as well as long-term health care. And as a result of um, their uh, predominance of um, serving patients at the bedside, they have been exposed Mm -hmm. to many diseases. And one of the tragedies of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States is that Filipino nurses here have suffered a disproportionate toll um, in terms of the number of their deaths mm-hmm. um, as a result of COVID-19. And so beginning in about you know late March, April of, of 2020, um, the media started reporting that there were Filipino nurses um, a number of whom had worked in the United States for decades, some of whom were just years from retirement, um, but who continued to serve on the front lines of this pandemic and um, uh, sadly passed away mm-hmm. and um, they comprise um, of about four percent of the nursing workforce um, in the United States but in twenty twenty and Um, 2021, the percentage of um, their deaths in the nursing workforce uh, was between um, 25 to almost 30%. So it was a significant um, disproportionate toll and an incredible um, sacrifice. Um, But this history, as I um, point out in Um, My new book, Asian-American Histories of the United States, but also my first book, Empire of Care, is actually a century, um, over a century long history. Mm -hmm. And um, it begins with U.S. colonization of the Philippines in um, the late 19th century um, through 1946 um, officially. Um, and with the creation of an Americanized training hospital system in the Philippines in the early 20th century that, that trained Filipino nurses there in um, a U.S. nursing curriculum and also um, in the English language. Mm-hmm. And this inadvertently um, prepared them to work in United States. So when the United States started to experience um, critical nursing shortages um, after World War II um, and into the 1960s and 1970s, a number of healthcare institutions here turned to the Philippines to to recruit um, nurses there because of their Americanized training, their fluency in the English language. Mm -hmm. And they were used to help staff um, often the most difficult um, shifts and um, in institutions, healthcare institutions um, in the United States. And some of those healthcare institutions are featured in these popular medical dramas (laughs) on TV, um, uh, like um, ER, Mm -hmm. which was um, based in um, Chicago. And yet when you um, are are watching these shows? You know, I watch these shows too. <laughs> yeah. And you might see them, like you know, uh, yeah, on as as sideline um, characters, mm-hmm. and not at the the center of our healthcare experience, um, which actually many of them are because of the important roles that they play on the bedside. And so, representation matters. Um, so it matters in terms of TV dramas, different kinds of media. It matters in terms of the, the books that we put out there and the kind of curriculum um, that we teach. And part of that representation is about understanding the contributions of Asian Americans, and in this case, Filipino nurses,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, to healthcare in this country.
0: Yes, such an important point. And I think so critical that that's how you open the book again, because it's something that we can all kind of understand, you know, we're all in this COVID-19 pandemic um, together. And so I really like that that's how the book is anchored, right? That that's how it opens. Because as you mentioned, this representation is so important. Um, we're going to get to more about what is represented in the book, but let's take a quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Catherine Saniza Choi, Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Belonging, and Justice at UC Berkeley, and the author of Asian American Histories of the United States. Well, you know, in the first segment, we talked just a little bit or mentioned um, the student strikes that happened in the 1960s, and this is one of your chapters um, that you talk about more in depth, and I wanted to spend a little time here because in my classes, I teach, you know, at the University of Memphis, undergrads, and we spend a week talking about student strikes, and they're always so amazed because they've never heard about this before, Um, but also I think they get excited because they're like, wow, these students who are like me, you know, in undergrad, they did something that transforms our educational landscape. And that's still, you know, we see um, that change still now today, the effects of that change. Um, So I wanted to spend some time here. And for our listeners, could you just talk a little bit about what those student strikes were and kind of some of the main outcomes of those student strikes in the late 1960s?
1: Sure. Um, Let me begin first by saying that um, even the the term Asian American, um, which is something that we might take for granted today, hasn't always been with us. Mm -hmm. And um, today we might think of it um, generally um, as um, an Asian American is um, an American with Asian ancestry. And so it's it's a label of of identification. But the term Asian American has a history um, that is complex and and nuanced um, and and really provides multi-layered meaning to Asian American. Um, And that history, um, one of its origin points is in the late 1960s and with student strikes at San Francisco State College as it was then Um, in 1968 and then at UC Berkeley in 1969. And um, these students um, who were part of um, solidarity movements between um, the Black Student Union and um, the Third World Liberation Front worked together to strike on their campuses to demand for Um, inclusion of um, students, faculty, staff of color in these institutions of higher learning and also an inclusive, more humane, dignified curriculum um, Mm -hmm. to be taught about people of of color um, in the United States as as well as in um, a global context. And this was partly in response to a very Eurocentric um, curriculum um, in which um, people of color were not well represented. And if they were represented, it was often in terms of being ancient mm-hmm. uh, civilizations or um, international cultures um, and not reflective of the longstanding um, diversity uh, in, in the United States. And one of their greatest um, contributions. Um, was to create ethnic studies as an interdiscipline involving the history, the um, um, artistic works um, and the contemporary issues of um, various racialized underrepresented groups in the United States, but also more broadly Having um, curriculum connections with the community Mm -hmm. um, and organizations that were relevant to the um, communities in which we live and serve. Mm -hmm. Um, So, moving away from this stereotype or vision of the ivory tower and and being um, connected uh, to to the world to the community in which um, uh, we live in so to have ethnic studies curriculum and then um, um, a a college of of ethnic studies um, that would be established at san francisco um, state university at uc berkeley we have a department of ethnic studies this was a major um, contribution, but there were so many um, contributions in terms of um, various organizations that came out of these social movements and and student strikes. And even the term Asian American, um, as I said, which we might take for granted today, came out of this time period and the creation of um, a student organization, Asian American Political Alliance, Um, founded in in Berkeley um, that was an anti-imperialist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist institution. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate what you were saying earlier about students being excited about this because it is um, one historical example of the historical agency of students, their ability to make history and and
0: really change the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I mean, I think for my students too, and and thinking I I try to make the connections for them, not only in these student strikes, the longest student strike in US history so far, you know, in the late 1960s, 1968, 1969, but also if we think more contemporarily as well, and thinking about 2014, 2015, where we saw student strikes, particularly um, as a result, or in conjunction with the Black Lives Matter movement, and again, fighting for some some very similar things as well, thinking about the curriculum, thinking about racial justice, um, thinking about hiring practices and and student acceptance rates and things like that as well. So again, these connections and and the power of students, you know, we really see throughout history and it gets people excited to know that they can be a part of history, right? That what they do really matters. So just thinking about that representation again and how powerful it is. Um, The other piece that I really liked about this chapter is that you talk about the history of the term Asian American, which, as you mentioned here now, we take for granted because it's kind of like, you know, another checkbox you see on forms and you're like Asian American and even for Asian Americans, oftentimes we don't know the history and we don't know the meaning behind the term and that it really was this self-defined, you know, political action Um, and so I really appreciate that you included that in this chapter, and then the other piece, as you mentioned just now, but I want to draw out a little bit more, is that the Asian American Political Alliance um, was part of a a coalition of student groups, Black Student Union, Third World Liberation Front, and so thinking again about those cross-racial coalitions, and particularly with Asian Americans and black Americans, because this is another area where we see a misrepresentation of both history, but also presently what those cross-racial solidarities look like. Um, And one thing, a couple things you mentioned that I'd love for you to share with our listeners too, is you talk about Frederick Douglass um, and some of the early statements that he made when we're thinking about Chinese in American. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that now.
1: Well, I'm so glad you brought up, This particular topic, because as you were saying, um, there is so much um, misrepresentation and misunderstanding um, regarding the historical relationships between Asian and Black Americans, and so um, in that chapter that you're referring to um, on 1968 and and what's in, what's in a name. Um, There is um, a section that features a history of Asian Black American solidarity, beginning with um, um, one origin point we could begin with is Frederick Douglass's um, speech um, from 1869 about our composite nationality. And he was advocating for continued Chinese immigration to the United States and Um, he also emphasized that he would support the naturalization Mm -hmm. of um, Chinese um, migrants to become U.S. citizens. And this was um, a bold and courageous statement um, in 1869, because already by that time, um, there was an anti-Chinese movement um, forming um, in in the United States, that was starting to um, racialize um, Chinese migrants um, in the U.S. as other, mm-hmm. um, and in in the worst case um, scenario, as inferior and um, and less than human. So for Frederick Douglass to um, to uh, voice his support in a public way um, is, is very meaningful. And I think that this is in the chapter, I talk about how this is just one example of a longer history of solidarity um, between Asian Americans and Black Americans, groups who are often racialized in ways that are pit, pit themselves um, against one another. Um, And there are various examples I bring, um, um, including um, how um, African-American soldiers were part of um, U.S. colonial forces to colonize the the Philippines in the late 19th, early 20th century, and how some of those African-American soldiers um, recognized um, uh, similarities and developed a solidarity with Filipinos in the Philippines who were fighting for their own independence, first against Spain and then the United States. And some of them um, left um, US military forces and and sided with um, Filipino um, nationalists. And how this continues um, into um, the first half of the 20th century um, with um, friendship, Between um, African American families and Japanese American, their Japanese American neighbors on the US West Coast um, during uh, World War II, Um, how some of um, their Black friends and neighbors visited them in um, their quote unquote relocation centers where they were forcibly um, removed before being forcibly incarcerated in internment camps in various places in the United States without due process. Mm -hmm. Um, And it continues to um, the second half of the 20th century um, with um, marriages, family formation and activism between um, Grace Lee Boggs and her um, husband, um, James Boggs, their creation of uh, Freedom Summer in um, Detroit, mm-hmm. um, which was an intergenerational program that focused on youth leadership and um, creating gardens in Detroit and um, other kinds of public programs like creating um, murals um, to beautify um, local um, spaces and and create dialogue across racial, groups and um, generations. And you also brought up um, the the issue of Asian American um, solidarity. Um, There have been specific concrete examples of that with um, the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement. And one of the examples I bring up in the book is um, Letters for Black Lives, which was um, started by Asian Canadians um, as well as Asian Americans. Um, and we often think of um, like maybe solidarity and social movements in terms of public protests. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are many different ways to express solidarity. And and, um, in Letters for Black Lives, one of the powerful ways they do that is by creating letters that are shared publicly, but letters that are addressed to their Asian Canadian, Asian American elders and families to bring awareness of why black lives matter um, to all of us and also specifically um, to Asian Canadians and and Asian um, Americans. So this is a longer <laughs> this is a longer history, but we're often not taught this. instead, um, we are often um, confronted with um, stereotypes like the model minority that um, purportedly uplift um, Asian Americans as, model minorities in contrast to black Americans um, Mm -hmm. who are less than model. Um, And then um, being pitted together, even in the the present moment with the circulation of images and and videos of black on Asian American um, violence in this current surge of um, anti-Asian hate and violence. And when you see that, Perpetual um, circulation of those kinds of images, it um, perpetuates this idea that this problem of anti-Asian hate and violence is a black on Asian American um, problem, mm-hmm. and that's actually empirically not the the case. If you look at you know a, a number of studies that have been done, and yet. Um, Because those are the representations that are out there. It it creates a a misunderstanding um, Mm -hmm. between our communities, but but also, you know, to to the general public. And this is not to say um, that there aren't um, problems between our um, communities. Um, we we also should acknowledge that, but it's it's important to understand that anti-Asian hate violence isn't solely a, a black on on Asian um, uh, problem.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I so appreciate this chapter. Because like you said, if we see these very stereotypical or limited representations that advance these ideas that there is um, always conflict or strife between Asian American and black American communities, then it's easy to continue to look for those examples. And then coupled with the fact that we don't learn like we don't learn about any of these histories, um, I would venture to say we don't learn at all about Asian American and black American solidarity throughout history. And we learn extremely little about Asian American history. So therefore we have nothing challenging the stereotypical or in dehumanizing representations that we see circulated in the media.
1: Yes, you had mentioned earlier that um, one of the themes that I feature in the book um, is erasure. Mm-hmm. And, um, that theme of erasure is very much connected to the erasure, um, of our Asian American histories, um, in, in our schools, but in our, um, you know, our, our broader, um, uh, communities. And, um, I'd like to think that history, as I've said earlier, can be a, a resource mm-hmm. for us, um to deal with the the conflicts and um, the violence that we are confronting today. What if we had known about these histories of solidarity between Mm -hmm. our our communities? How would that help us rethink, not solely our past and present, but also our future? Mm -hmm. And might it inspire us to build upon these examples of solidarity and inspire us to continue to work together.
0: I love that question about the future. How does this information help us rethink possibilities for the future? Such an important question for us all to think about. Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Catherine Saniza Choi, the author of Asian American Histories of the United States. And we've been having a great conversation about some of the, the key points that you bring up throughout the book. And I will be honest, when I got to the chapter about uh, 1941 and 1942, the days that you remember, I think this chapter was uh, maybe one of the most impactful chapters uh, because of the the way that you present the information. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about the writing in this chapter as well. But also I realized that even for me, someone who I think is always learning about histories, um, our Asian-American histories, um, the way you talked about um, Asian American women in particular and their contribution to the war efforts, right? You talk about, you know, this this imagery of Rosie the Riveter, which I'm sure we can all kind of <laughs> think about, right? That image, and talking about Asian American women who also were, you know, working in different factories for the war effort or even in the military, um, and it just never occurred. It just never occurred to me. That of course there were Asian American men and women, right, serving the US in a variety of ways. But I think that speaks to this idea of erasure um, and how when you have these limited representations, there are some things that just never come to your mind. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners a little bit of um, a little bit of that chapter and thinking about the various ways that Asian Americans were contributing to those war efforts.
1: Well, thank you first for um, saying how impactful this chapter um, was for you, and um, given your own expertise in um, Asian American studies, um, that that means a lot to me. And um, similarly, when I every time I'm teaching um, or writing about um, Asian American history, Asian American studies more broadly. Um, I I always learn something new. Mm. Um, And so approaching these topics, which seem like um, some of them anyway, like Japanese American internment during World War II, um, seem like one of the most well known topics, Mm. Um, still approaching them with um, fresh eyes and with humility and curiosity um, is something I've tried to do in my own research and and teaching. And I I try to impart also to to my students. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, this chapter takes um, what is a more familiar um, episode in Asian American history. And that is the um, uh, incarceration of approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans on the West Coast. Um, into um, internment camps in various places in the United States because they were racialized as the um, Japanese enemy, even though two-thirds of them were U.S. born. Um, and this was done with without due process. And it's one of the more well-known um, episodes in our histories because it is one of the few that Um, will appear in K through 12 um, curriculum. But Mm -hmm. even um, with that appearance um, in in some um, textbooks, um, it's often a very uh, brief um, uh, appearance. And one of the ways I approach it um, differently in this chapter is to write about this history in the second person, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the more traditional third person that we use in, in um, scholarly um, and his history books, and so I'm trying to have the reader imagine themselves mm-hmm. um, in this moment in in various ways. The the shock of learning that suddenly. Um, if you're on on the West Coast, that you are um, uh, required to um, be at a particular place, and um, you're not quite sure what's happening to your relatives. I mean, some of them are being rounded up and and taken away, um, and some of you are um, college students at UC Berkeley and other. Um, uh, universities um, on, on the West Coast, and you won't be able to graduate. Um, you will be also forcibly relocated into um, a center, which was often um, a converted um, horse racetrack, such as in Tanfuran in, Cali- in Northern California. And um, you will receive your diploma um, in a horse stall, um, when when a male person um, hands it to you and you won't be able to walk across the stage um, at, at UC Berkeley. And if you were um, George Takei, um, who was not yet well known um, <laughs> to be a groundbreaking um, Asian-American, um, Japanese-American actor in, in Star Trek, um, you will be um, interned. Um, uh, with your family and um, you will be a, a young person and you will learn from your father that um, even in the most horrible moments his his father had uh, created sculptures out of um, a, a tree that was growing in um, the swampland that was part of their um, internment camp in, in Arkansas. And you'll learn an important lesson Um, about resilience, which is recognizing um, the beauty around you, even in the most dehumanizing um, kinds of of moments. Mm -hmm. And so the use of the second person is to um, hopefully create this feeling of being there in the moment and creating empathy Mm -hmm. um, in, in history. But also in that chapter, um, I talk about the experiences of other Asian American groups that are not as well known um, during World War II, mm-hmm. and that even though they were not necessarily in, interned, a number of them had to wear buttons that mm-hmm. would say, I am Filipino or Chinese or, or Korean, um, and they wouldn't understand why some of their Japanese American um, schoolmates were being taken away or why people would yell at them and mm-hmm. say, you're a quote unquote Jap as a, as a racial slur during that, that time. Um, and then there were Asian Americans both Japanese American um, and and other Asian American groups that made incredible contributions to the war effort um, through their participation um, in the armed forces, and that included women, as you uh, uh, were bringing up, people like Maggie Maggie G and and Susan On, Chinese American, Korean American women who were breaking ground in terms of. Um, Uh, working for um, the Air Force um, Mm -hmm. and um, the U.S. Navy and um, as Rosie the Riveters and you were (laughs) saying like what's the image of the Rosie the Riveter And, and this is where again this representation of The Rosie the River, so many of us are familiar with it as um, a white American woman is wearing a red like bandana and like a blue denim shirt and flexing muscle. But among the um, Rosie the Riveters were Asian American, Chinese American, Filipino American women working at the Kaiser shipyards here in the San Francisco Bay Area and who were contributing to to the war effort um that way. Mm-hmm. So it's important to juxtapose these experiences to show some of the similarities but also some of the key differences regarding Asian American histories of that time period um World War II um and also both the injustice and then their contributions mm-hmm. um in many ways to to justice because part of the contribution was to the, the war effort, but also to make the point that they are part of the community, Mm -hmm. um, that, that Asian Americans are here doing their part, contributing to so many different U.S. industries.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. I really enjoyed, you know, reading this chapter again, because I was like, wow, like thinking about these Asian American women pilots at this time period. Right. And like you mentioned, all of these various barriers that they were breaking that I've never heard about. Um, And I think that's one of the the strengths of the book is that you introduce not only key events or, or topics, but also people, right? You really make the history personalized because we get a lot of vignettes of individuals during the various time periods and kind of what they were doing or what their families were experiencing. And so I think that is also one of the strengths in not only Focusing on these different time periods and weaving them past and present, but then also making it really personable. So it's not, you know, how maybe you think about this stereotype of like the boring history book, right? That's hard (laughs) to read, but you really make all these connections for us so that the history is, you know, is alive. Um, I wanna ask a couple of questions about the writing process, the writing itself. So, as you mentioned in this particular chapter that we were talking about, you use the second person which again, really makes that history come alive. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what was your decision making around the use of, you know, first person, second person, third person, you know, in the book? Um, how did you decide what voice you wanted to write in um, and kind of what was shaping those decisions for you?
1: Well, I love your phrase, like making history come alive. And it's such a great... Um, Um, Thank you so much for saying that about your experiencing reading um, this book, because I I would love for that to happen um, for readers to feel as though the history is alive. It is not solely an artifact of the past, Mm -hmm. but it is something that is dynamic. It is living you know, history is a living thing and we all participate in it by what we choose to read, remember, reflect upon mm-hmm. um, uh, and how we choose to use this this knowledge that we've gained moving forward. And so for me, history is not boring, but I completely <laughs> understand there's that general perception of it um that that it's boring, and that definitely influenced the, my writing process. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want the the history to be relatable and personal and to make an impression um, on on readers. Um, and I think in order to do that, the story part of history um, is one that I really, was thinking about because it's our history is about storytelling it's not solely conveying the events and the years and the timeline and um uh but it's also about seeing ourselves Mm -hmm. in history and even when the history is uncomfortable how how empowering that can be to see oneself in, in the narrative. Mm-hmm. So for me, I really wanted um, uh, the writing to reflect this engagement with with readers. And I, I like the use, just me personally, as a reader and, and a writer, I like this idea of bringing in Um, different voices. And one can do that through these personal vignettes, as you point out in the book, I I bring um, individual stories into, you know, much larger events and historical Mm -hmm. um, uh, phenomena. Um, But another way to bring different perspectives is to use the third person, the second person, and and the first person. And they each have their advantages and and disadvantages, but um, they each bring, I think, together um, something powerful, which is who is telling the story? Mm -hmm. Um, and how that really matters. So it was like an inclusive approach. Like I wanted to share my own experiences Mm -hmm. um, as an Asian American. Um, uh, But I also wanted readers who may not necessarily identify as Asian American try to empathize and Mm -hmm. and identify with with some of the um, uh, histories. And that's where second person can be very powerful. And then the third person is to honor the many different historical actors, the individuals and communities, the organizations that are um, featured uh, in the book. And the the third person can be a very powerful way for for bringing those different um, actors in as part of history and and historical um, uh, storytelling. So it was challenging, and I have to say, I felt, I'll just share with you, like, I was a little nervous about it, <laughs> just because, you know, I usually use the the third person, and I thought, oh, I don't know what people are going to think about this, because to a certain extent, it might seem, um, you know, experimental or non-traditional, mm-hmm. but um, the, writing this history was, like, a heartfelt process um, for me, and, um I thought I would, I would try it. Well, <laughs> Writing I'm that so way.
0: glad that you did. You know, try it, and that you didn't let any kind of nervousness or or, or doubts about it um, stop you, because it it really adds something to the book, and I think it makes it, you know, not just more personable but really more accessible because like you mentioned you know we are storytellers as people that's how we connect with one another and that's how we learn and so I think what your book really does is it is that storytelling tradition where you're an active part as the reader you're an active part of what you're reading Um, and I think that makes it you know that, that you hold on to that information more than if you're you know think someone is just telling you kind of dates and events and, you know, things like that, but you actually hold on to the story. Um, You mentioned that it was a very, you know, personal process as well. And I'm wondering um, for you, I imagine that you started writing this book or started thinking about it, I'm sure, before 2020, before COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm wondering how much of, you know, our global events impacted what you decided to say, or even maybe how you decided to say it?
1: Global events and, and our present day were just so influential to mm-hmm. um, uh, finalizing the book's organization and and my approach and the, the content of each and every um, part of the book. You're right. I I started writing and thinking about um, this book a few years before 2020, mm-hmm. um, and in many ways, because the the book is um, a, an an overview that is meant to be as accessible as as possible to um, readers from you know where wherever you are. But um, an overview of almost 200 years of histories of Asian migration, labor, and community formation um in, in the United States. So in many ways, it's actually like a reflection of my over two 20 years of research, teaching and and writing in, in Asian American history and Asian American studies. But I had struggled a little bit with when I was first starting to to write the book mm-hmm. in the sense that um, Uh, I was thinking like, well, how am I going to structure it? This is such a a large group Mm -hmm. of people by, you know, the the 21st century. And then when um, uh, COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization, and we started to see the surge in anti-Asian hate and violence, thanks to the work of Um, Asian American um, community advocates and activists, such as the Stop AAPI Hate um, Reporting Center and the creation of that um, in uh, 2020, I gained this renewed sense of purpose in terms of writing this book. Um, So many Asian Americans were experiencing um, anti-Asian hate and violence at a level that many of us had not experienced before. And as a historian, I had known that this hate and violence was not necessarily new, but um, so many people in our communities had just never experienced that intense level of harassment, of um, being shunned in you know, the post office or in a grocery or being looked at, um, or even at times spit upon, you know, with, um, with fear, being told, you know, go back to your country and take, take this virus back Mm -hmm. with you. Um, And I was grappling with that, um, this kind of pain um, and the, the trauma it, creates like that, both mentally as, as well as physically and as difficult as it was i i wanted to document what was happening the intensity of what was happening um, since since 2020 so that gave me a renewed sense of of purpose in terms of how important violence is um, as a theme in um, Asian American histories. But because another major theme is erasure, that we are so like prone to forget because there's so much today in our digital age with social media, there's so many things vying for our attention that it becomes easier to, to forget uh, literally something that just happened. And for Asian Americans, I was also thinking that perhaps in wanting to survive what is happening, we may also choose to try to forget some Mm -hmm. of these things. And um, yes, as a historian, I felt that um, I really wanted to to document this very difficult, um, uncomfortable history, Mm -hmm. but with the intent of doing it so that this would not happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I had to confront too, as a historian was that um, so many of us, um, including Asian Americans, but the the general public, um, know so little about Asian American history. And this goes back to something you were saying earlier, that it's just in in this year, the past year that there've been these urgent efforts to, to get Asian American history and Asian American studies in our schools K through 12 and, and even at the university and college level. Mm-hmm. So, um, so all of these things were very influential um, in terms of um, why I wrote the book and in the way I, I did it Um, by using a non-linear approach by beginning in 2020 and going backwards in time with the the chapter. um, Part of that is to make the point that um, Asian American history has been relevant for over a century, nearly two centuries for so many decades. Why don't we know this? Mm-hmm. about 1968 and the the student strikes and social movements to create ethnic studies? Why don't we know about these histories of Black and Asian American solidarity? Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we know about the contributions of so many different Asian American groups during World War II? Mm-hmm. And I think going back in time um, is... Um, what I hope will be a novel way to help us remember and reflect not solely these events, but also how so many of us have not known Mm -hmm. about these histories.
0: Yes. Well, now we can all know because you've written this amazing book, Asian American Histories of the United States. Thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Sinisa Choi, for being with us this morning.
1: Well, thanks so much, Sina, for for having me. I really enjoyed being here and talking with you.
0: Thank you again to Dr. Catherine Siniza Choi. She is the author of Asian American Histories of the United States, I truly enjoyed reading this book. It is written in such a personable and accessible way that even if you're like, wait a minute, I'm not a a big fan of, of history or of reading. I think you will really enjoy this book. Well, for today's positive note, I just want to remind you of something that Kathy said, which is that history is living and we all participate in it. And so I think this is also a challenge for all of us to say, hey, how are we participating in history? And how do we want to participate in history? Well, I think that this book, Asian American Histories of the United States is definitely a good start. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm here every Monday morning. And if you miss any part of this show or just wanna listen again, be sure to subscribe to the show in podcast format available on all streaming platforms. I can't wait to be back with you again next Monday morning.